Welcome to Volume 6 of The Mating Season. Chapter 13 It was a Bertram Worcester with a pale, careworn face and a marked disposition to start at sudden noises, who sat in his bedroom on the following afternoon, rising occasionally to pace the floor. Few seeing him would have recognized in this limp and shivering chunk of human flotsam the suave, dapper, boulevardier of happier years. I was waiting for Katsmi to return from the metropolis and make his report. Thrashing the thing out on the previous evening, we had not taken long in reaching the conclusion that it would be madness to attempt to cope with this major crisis ourselves, and that the whole conduct of the affair must at the earliest moment be handed over to Jeeves, and as Jeeves was in London and it might have looked odd for me to dash away from the big house for the night, Casmeet had gone up to confer with him. He had tooled off secretly in my two-seater, expecting to be back around lunchtime. But lunch had come and gone! The duck and green peas turned into ashes in my mouth, and still no sign of him. It was past three when he finally showed up. At the sight of him, my heart, throwing off its burden of care, did a quick soft shoe dance. No fellow, I reasoned, unless he was bringing good news could look so like the United States Marines. When last seen driving off on his mission, his air had been sober and downcast, as if he feared that even Jeeves would have to confess himself snookered by this one. He was now gay, bobbish, and boopsadaisy. So sorry I'm late, he said. Had to wait for Jeeves's brain to gather momentum. He was a little slower off the mark than usual. I clutched his arm. Did he click, I cried, quivering in every limb. Oh, yes, he clicked. Jeeves always clicks. But this time, only after brooding for what seemed an eternity, I found him in the kitchen at your flat, sipping a cup of tea and reading Spinoza, and put our problem before him, bidding him set the little grey cells in operation without delay and Think of some way of preventing your blasted aunt from fulfilling her evil purpose of coming to infest Everell Hall. He said he would, and I went back to the sitting-room where I took a seat, put my feet on the mantelpiece, and thought of Gertrude. From time to time I would rise and look into the kitchen and ask him how it was coming, but he motioned me away with a silent wave of the hand and let the brain out another notch. Finally he emerged and announced that he'd got it, he had been musing, as always, on the psychology of the individual. What individual? My Aunt Agatha? Naturally, your Aunt Agatha. What other individual's psychology would you have expected him to muse on? Sir Stafford Cripps? He then proceeded to outline a scheme which I think you will agree was a ball of fire. Tell me, Bertie, have you ever stolen a cub from a tigress? I said no. For one reason or another, I never had. And he asked me what, if I ever did, I suppose the reactions of the tigress would be, always assuming that she was a good wife and mother. And I said that while I didn't set myself up as an authority on tigresses, I imagined that she would be as sick as mud. Exactly. And you would expect the animal, the loss of its child, having been drawn to its attention, to drop everything and start looking for it, would you not? It would completely revise its social plans, don't you think? If, for instance, it had arranged to visit other tigresses in a nearby cave, it would cancel the date and begin hunting around for clues. You agree? I said yes. I thought this was probable. Well, that is what Jeeves feels will happen in the case of your Aunt Agatha when she learns that her son Thomas 
has vanished from his school at Bramley-on-Sea. I can't tell you offhand what I had been expecting, but it certainly wasn't this. Having recovered sufficient breath to enable me to put the question, I asked what it was he had said, and he repeated his words at a dictation speed. And I said, but dash it! And he said, well, you are telling me that Jeeves is going to kidnap young Thomas? He tissed impatiently. You don't have to kidnap die-in-the-wolf fans like your cousin Thomas if you inform them that their favorite film star is hoping that they will be able to get away and come and spend a few days at the vicarage where she is staying. That's the message which Jeeves has gone to Bramley-on-Sea to deliver, and I confidently expect it to work like a charm. You mean he'll run away from school? Of course he'll run away from school. Like lightning. However, to clinch the thing, I empowered Jeeves in your name to offer a fee of five quid in the event of any hesitation. I gather from Jeeves, in whom he confided, that the young Thomas is more than ordinarily out for the stuff just now. He's saving up to buy a camera. I applauded the shrewd thought, but I didn't think that this introduction of the sordid note would really be necessary. Thomas is a boy of volcanic passions, the sort of boy who, if he had but three pence in the world, would spend it on a stamp, writing to Dorothy L'Amour for her autograph. And the message which Catsmeet had outlined would, I felt, be in itself amply sufficient to get him on the move. Yes. Catsmeet agreed. I think we should shortly have the young fellow with us, but not your Aunt Agatha, who will be occupied elsewhere. It's a pity she has to be temporarily deprived of her cub, of course, and one sympathizes with a mother's anxiety. It would have been nice if the thing could have been arranged some other way, but that's how it goes. One has simply got to say to oneself that into each life a little rain must fall. My own view was that Aunt Agatha wouldn't be anxious so much as hopping mad. Thomas, I said, makes rather a specialty of running away from school. He's done it twice before this. Once to attend a cup final and once to go hunting for buried treasure in the Caribbean. And I don't remember Aunt Agatha on either occasion as the stricken mother. Thomas was the one who got stricken. Six of the best on the old spot, he tells me. This, I should imagine, will probably occur again. And I think that even if he takes the assignment on for love alone, I will slip him that fiver as added money. It would be a graceful act. After all, what's money? You can't take it with you. That's the right spirit. But isn't Corky going to be at a bit of a loss when he suddenly shows up? That's all fixed. I met her in the village and told her. And she approved? Wholeheartedly. Corky always approves of anything that seems likely to tend to start something. She's a wonderful girl. A very admirable character. By the way, she tells me you put in that word in season? Yes, I thought she seemed braced. That's how she struck me, too. Odd that she should be so crazy about Esmond Haddock. I've only seen him from a distance, of course, but I should have imagined he would have been a bit on the stiff side for Corky. He's not really stiff. You should see him relaxing over a port. Perhaps you're right, and anyway, love's a thing you can't argue about. I suppose it would perplex thousands that Gertrude, bless her, loves me. Yet she does. And look at poor little Queenie, broken-hearted over the loss of a Raza I wouldn't have been seen in a ditch with. Talking of Queenie, I was thinking of taking her to the pictures at Basingstoke this afternoon, if you'll lend me your car. Of course! You feel it would cheer her up? It might. 
I should like to slap balm on that wounded spirit if I could manage it. It's curious how, when you're in love, you yearn to go about doing acts of kindness to everybody. I'm bursting with a sort of yeasty benevolence these days, like one of those chaps in Dickens. I very nearly bought you a tie in London. Gosh, who's that? Someone had knocked on the door. Come in, I said, and Casme dashed at the wardrobe and dashed out festooned in trousers and things, striking the professional note. Silversmith came in, navigating over the threshold. This majestic man always had in his deportment a suggestion of the ambassador about to deliver important state papers to a reigning monarch, and now the resemblance was heightened by the fact that in front of his ample stomach he was bearing a salver with a couple of telegrams on it. I gathered them in, and he went navigating out again. Casby replaced the trousers. He was quivering a little. What effect does that bloke have on you, Bertie? He asked, in a hushed voice, as if he was speaking in a cathedral. He paralyzes me. I don't know if you're familiar with the works of Joseph Conrad, but there's a chap in his Lord Jim of whom he says, Had you been the Emperor of the East and West, you could not have ignored your inferiority in his presence. That silversmith, he fills me with an awful humility. He shrivels my immortal soul to the size of a parched pea. He's the living image of some of those old-time pros who used to give me such a hell of a time when I first went on the stage. Well, go on, open them. You mean the telegrams? What did you think I meant? They're addressed to Gussie. Of course they're addressed to Gussie, but they're for you. We don't know that. They must be. One's probably from G's telling you that the balloon has gone up. What about the other? It may be a tender Bobsworth from Madeline. Oh, go on. I was firm. No, Casmeet. The coat of the Worcesters restrains me. The coat of the Worcesters is more rigid than the coat of the cat's meats. A Worcester cannot open a telegram addressed to another, even if for the moment he is that other, if you see what I mean. I'll have to submit them to Gussie. All right. If you see it that way, I'll be off then, to try to bring a little sunshine to Queenie's life. He legged it, and I took a seat and went on being firm. The hour was 3.45. I continued firm till about five minutes to four. The catch about the coat of the Worcesters is that if you start examining it with a couple of telegrams staring you in the face, one of them almost certainly containing news of vital import, you find yourself after a while beginning to wonder if it's really so hot after all. I mean to say, the thought creeps in that maybe, if one did but know, the Worcesters are priceless asses to let themselves be ruled by a code like that. By four o'clock I wasn't quite so firm as I had been. By ten past my fingers were definitely twitching. It was at about 4.15 sharp I opened the first telegram. As Catsmeat had predicted, it was a cautiously worded communication from Jeeves, handed in at Bramley-on-Sea and signed Barger's Stores, guardedly intimating that everything had gone according to plan. The goods, it said, were in transit and would be delivered in a plain van in the course of the evening. Highly satisfactory. I put a match to it and reduced it to ashes, for you can't be too careful, and having done so was concerned to find, as I looked at the other envelope, that my fingers were still twitching. I took the thing and twiddled it thoughtfully. I can guess what you're going to say. You're going to say that, having perused the first one and mastered its contents, 
There was no need whatsoever for me to open the other. And you're perfectly right. But you know how it is. Ask the first lion cub you meet, and it will tell you that once you've tasted blood, there's no pulling up. And it's the same with opening telegrams. Conscience whispered that this one, addressed to Gussie and intended for Gussie, was for Gussie's eyes alone. And I agreed absolutely. But I could no more stop myself opening it than you can stop yourself eating another salted almond. I ripped the envelope, and the quick blush of shame mantled the cheek as my eye caught the signature. Madeline! Then my eye caught the rest of the barley thing. It read as follows. Finknottle, Deverell Hall, King's Deverell, Hots. Letter received. Cannot understand why not reassuring telegram. Sure you concealing accident terribly serious. Fever anxiety. Fear worst. Arriving Deverell Hall tomorrow afternoon. Love and kisses. Madeline. Chapter 14 Yes, that was a torpedo that exploded under my bows. And I had the feeling you get sometimes that some practical joker has suddenly removed all the bones from your legs, substituting for them an unsatisfactory jelly. I reread the thing to make sure I had seen what I thought I had seen, and finding I had buried the face in the hands. It was the being without advisers that made the situation so bleak. On these occasions when fate, having biffed you in the eye, proceeds to kick you in the pants, you want to gather the boys about you and thresh things out. And there weren't any boys to gather. Jeeves was in London, cats meet in Basingstoke. It made me feel like a Prime Minister who starts to call an important cabinet meeting and finds that the Home Secretary and the Lord President of the Council have nipped over to Paris and the Minister of Agriculture and Fisheries and the rest of the gang are at the dog races. There seemed to be nothing to do but wait till cats meet, having sat through the news and the main feature and the too real silly symphony went at homeward. And though reason told me that he couldn't get back for another two hours or more, and that even when he did get back it was about a hundred to eight against him having any constructive policy to put forward, I went down to the main gate and paced up and down, scanning the horizon like Sister What's-Her-Name in that story one used to read. The evening was well advanced, and the local birds had long since called it a day when I spotted the two-seater coming down the road. I flagged it and cats me to ply the brakes. Oh, hello, Bertie. He said in a subdued sort of voice, and when he had alighted and I had drawn him apart, he explained the reason for his sober deportment. Most unfortunate. He said, throwing a commiserating glance at the occupant of the other seat, who was staring before her with anguished eyes, and from time to time taking a dab at them with her handkerchief. With these tough films so popular, I suppose I might have foreseen that something like this would happen. The picture was full of cops, scores of cops racing to and fro, saying, Oh, so you won't talk, huh? And it was too much for poor little Queenie. Just twisted the knife in the wound, as you might say. She's better now, though still sniffing. I suppose if you went through the W1 Postal District of London with a fine-tooth comb and a brace of bloodhounds, you wouldn't find more than about three men readier than Bertram Worcester to sympathise with a woman's distress. And in ordinary circumstances, I would unquestionably have given a low, pitying whistle and said, Too bad, too bad. But I hadn't time now to mourn over stricken parlour-maids. 
All the morning at my disposal was earmarked for Worcester B. Read this, I said. He cocked an eye at me. Hello? He said in what is known as a sardonic manner. So, the coat of the Worcester sprang a leak, did it? I had an idea it would. I think he was about to develop the theme and be pretty dashed humorous at my expense. But at this moment he started to scan the document, and the gist of it hit him in the eyeball. Well, he said, this will want a little more management. Yes, I concur. It calls for sophisticated handling. We shall have to think this one over. I've been thinking it over for hours. Yes, but you've got one of those cheap substitute brains which are never any good. It will be different when a man like me starts giving it the cream of his intellect. If only Jeeves were here! Yes, we could use Jeeves. It's a pity he's not with us. And it's a pity I couldn't help pointing out, though the man of sensibility dislikes rubbing these things in, that you started the whole damn trouble by making Gussie wait at the Trafalgar Square fountain. True, one regrets that. Yet at the time it seemed so right, so inevitable. There he was, I mean, and... There was the fountain. I felt very strongly that here was an opportunity which might not occur again, and while I would be the last to deny that the aftermath hasn't been too good, it was certainly value for the money. A man who has seen Gussie Finknoddle chasing newts in the Trafalgar Square fountain in correct evening costume at five in the morning is a man who has lived. He has got something he can tell his grandchildren. But if we're apportioning the blame, we could go further back than that. Where the trouble started was when you insisted on me giving him dinner. Madness. You might have known something would crack. Well, it's no good talking about it. No. Action is what we want. Sharp, decisive action. As dished out by Napoleon. I suppose you will shortly be going in and dressing for dinner. I suppose so. How soon after dinner will you be in your room? As soon as I can jolly well manage it. Expect me there, then, probably with a whole plan of campaign cut and dried. And now I really must be getting back to Queenie. She will be on duty before long and will want to powder her nose and remove the tear stains. Poor little soul. If you knew how my heart bleeds for that girl, Bertie, you would shudder. And of course it being so vital that we should get together with the minimum of delay, that night turned out to be the one night when it was impossible to take an early powder. Instead of an ordinary dinner, a regular binge had been arranged, with guests from all over the countryside. No fewer than ten of Hampshire's most prominent stiffs had been summoned to the trough, and they stuck on like limpets, long after any competent chucker-out would have bounced them. No doubt if you have gone to the sweat of driving twenty miles to a house to dine, you don't feel like just snatching a chop and dashing off. You hang on for the musical evening and the drinks at ten-thirty. Be that as it may, it wasn't until close on midnight that the final car rolled away. When I bounded to my room off duty at last, there was no sign of cat's meat. There was, however, a note from him lying on the pillow, and I tore it open with a feverish flick of the finger. It was dated 11pm, and its tone was reproachful. He rebuked me for what he described as sitting gorging and swilling with my fine friends when it ought to have been at the conference table doing a bit of honest work. He asked me if I thought he was going to remain seated on his fanny in my damn room all night and hoped that I would have a hangover the next day, as well as indigestion from too much rich food. He couldn't wait any longer, he said, it being his intention to take my car and drive to London 
so as to be at Wimbledon Common bright and early tomorrow morning for an interview with Madeline Bassett. And at that interview, he went on, concluding on a cheerier note, he would fix everything up just the same as Mother makes it, for he had got the idea of a lifetime, an idea so superb that I could set my mind, if I called it a mind, completely at rest. He doubted, he said, whether Jeeves himself, even full to the brim with fish, could have dug up a better motus operandi. Well, this was comforting, of course, always provided that one could accept the theory that he was as good as he thought he was. You never knew what cats meet. In one of his school reports, which I happened to see while prowling about Reverend Aubrey Upjohn's study one night in search of biscuits, the Reverend Aubrey had described him as brilliant but unsound, and if ever a headmaster with a face like a cassowary rang the bell and entitled himself to receive a cigar or a coconut, this headmaster was that headmaster. However, I will own that his communication distinctly eased the spirit. It's a pretty well established fact that the head bowed down with weight of woe to the weakest hope will cling. And that's what mine did. It was in quite an uplifted frame of mind that I shed the soup and fish and climbed into the slumberware. I rather think, though, I wouldn't swear to it, that I sang a bar or two of a recent song. I had just donned the dressing gown and was preparing for a final cigarette when the door opened and Gussie came in. Gussie was in a peevish mood. He hadn't liked the stiffs, and he complained with a good deal of bitterness at having had to waste in their society an evening which might have been spent at Shea Corky. You couldn't oil out of a big dinner party, I urged. No, that's what Corky said. She said it wouldn't do. Noblesse oblige was one of the expressions she used. Amazing what high principles she has. You don't often find a girl as pretty as that with such high principles. And how pretty she is, isn't she, Bertie? Or rather, when I say pretty, I mean angelically lovely. I agree that Corky's face wouldn't stop a clock. And he retorted warmly, what did I mean that it wouldn't stop a clock? She's divine, the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. It seems so extraordinary that she should be Peerbright's sister. You would think any sister of Peerbright's would be as repulsive as he is. I'd call Catsby rather good-looking. I'll disagree with you. He's a hellhound, and it comes out in his appearance. There are newts in the fountain, Gussie, he said to me. Get after them without a second's delay. And I wouldn't take no for an answer. Urged me on with sharp hunting cries. Yoikes, he said, and tally-ho. But what I came about, Bertie? Said Gussie, breaking off as abruptly as if this dip into the past pained him, was to ask if you could lend me that tie of yours, with the pink lozenges on the dove-grey background. I shall be dropping in at the vicarage tomorrow morning, and I want to look my best. Apart from the fleeting thought that he was a bit of an optimist, if he expected a tie with pink lozenges on a dove-grey background to undo nature's handiwork to the extent of making him look anything but a fish-faced gargoyle, my reaction to these words was a feeling of profound relief that I had had that talk with Corky and obtained her promise that she would lose no time in choking Gussie off and putting him on ice. For it was plain that there was no time to be lost. 
Every word the superheated newt fancier uttered showed more clearly the extent to which he had got it up his nose. Chatting with Augustus Finknortle about Corky was like getting the inside from Mark Anthony on the topic of Cleopatra, and every second he spent out of the Frigidaire was fraught with peril. It was only too plain that the larches, Wimbledon Common, had ceased to mean a thing in his life, and instead of being a holy shrine housing the girl of his dreams, had become just an address in the suburban telephone book. I gave him the tie and he thanked me and started out. Oh, by the way, he said, pausing at the door, you remember pestering me to write to Madeline? Well, I've done it. I wrote her this afternoon. Why are you looking like a dying duck? I was looking like a dying duck because I had, of course, instantly spotted the snag. What, I was asking myself, was Madeline Bassett going to think when on top of the letter about the sprained wrist she got one in Gussie's handwriting with no reference in it whatsoever to runaway horses and completely silent on the theme of golden-haired children with lisps? I revealed to Gussie the recent activity of the Cat's Meat Worcester duo, and he frowned disapprovingly. Most officious, he said, writing people's love letters for them, and not in the best of taste. However, he proceeded, it doesn't really matter, because what I said in my letter was that everything was off. I tottered and would have fallen had not I clutched at a passing chest of drawers. Off? I've broken the engagement. I've been feeling for some days now that Madeline, though a nice girl, won't do. My heart belongs to Corky. Well, good night again, Bertie, and thanks for the tie. He withdrew, humming a sentimental ballad. Chapter 15 The Larches, Wimbledon Common was one of those eligible residences, standing in commodious grounds with company's own water, both hot and cold, and the usual domestic offices, and all that sort of thing, which you pass on the left as you drive out of London by way of Putney Hill. I don't know who owns these joints, though obviously citizens who have got the stuff in sackfuls, and I didn't know who owned the larches. All I knew was that Gussie's letter to Madeline Bassett would be arriving at that address by the first postal delivery, and it was my intention, should the feat prove to be within the scope of human power, to intercept it and destroy it. In tampering with His Majesty's mails in this manner, I had an idea that I was rendering myself liable to about forty years in the coop, but the risk seemed to me well worth taking. After all, forty years soon pass, and only by preventing that letter reaching from its destination could I secure the bitter breathing space so urgently needed in order to enable me to turn around and think things over. That was why, on the following morning, the commodious grounds of the larches, in addition to a lawn, a summer-house, a pond, flower-beds, bushes, and an assortment of trees, contained also one Worcester, noticeably cold about the feet, and inclined to rise from twelve to eighteen inches skyward every time an early bird gave a sudden cheep over its worm. This Worcester, to whom I allude, was crouching in the interior of a bush, 
not far from the French windows of what, unless the architect had got the place all cockeyed, was the dining room. He had run up from King's Deverell on the 254 milk train. I say run, but perhaps sauntered would be more of the more juiced. When milk moves from spot to spot, it takes its time, and it was not until very near zero hour that I had sneaked in through the gates and got into position one. By the time I had wedged myself into a bush, the sun was high up in the sky, as Esmond Haddocks and Charlotte would have said, and I found myself musing, as I have so often had occasion to do, on the callous way in which nature refuses to chip in and do its bit when the human heart is in the soup. Though howling hurricanes and driving rainstorms would have been more suitable accompaniment to the run of the action, the morning, or morn, if you prefer to string along with Aunt Charlotte, was bright and fair. My nervous system was seriously disordered, and one of God's less likable creatures, with about a hundred and fourteen legs, had crawled down the small of my back and was doing its daily dozen on the sensitive skin. But what did nature care? Not a hoot! The sky continued blue and the fat-headed sun, which I had mentioned, shone smilingly throughout. Beetles on the spine are admittedly bad, calling for all that a man has of fortitude and endurance. But when embarking on an enterprise which involved parking the carcass in bushes, one more or less budgets for beetles. What was afflicting me much more than the activities on the underside was the reflection that I didn't know what was going to happen when the postman arrived. It might well be, I felt, that everybody at the larches fed in bed of a morning, in which event a maid would take Gussie's bit of trinitrotoluene up to Madeline's room on a tray, thus rendering my schemes null and void. It was just as this morale-lowering thought came into my mind that something suddenly bumped against my leg, causing the top of my head to part from its moorings. My initial impression that I had been set upon by a powerful group of enemies lasted, though it seemed a year for perhaps two seconds. Then the spots cleared before my eyes, and the world ceased doing the adagio dance into which it had broken. I was able to perceive that all that had come into my life was a medium-sized ginger cat. Breathing anew, as the expression is, I bent down and tickled it behind the ears, such being my invariable policy, and was still tickling when there was a bang and a rattle and somebody threw back the windows of the dining room. Shortly afterwards, the front door opened and a housemaid came out onto the steps and started shaking a mat in a languid sort of way. Able not to see the dining room and observing that the table was laid for the morning meal, I found my thoughts taking a more optimistic turn. Madeline Bassett, I told myself, was not the girl to remain sluggishly in bed while others rose. If the gang took their chow downstairs, she would be with them. One of those plates now under my inspection, therefore, was her plate, and beside it the fateful letter would soon be deposited. A swift dash, and I should be able to get my hooks on it before she came down. I limbered up the muscles, so as to be ready for instant action, and was on my toes and all set to go when there was a whistle to the southwest, and a voice said, <coughs> I saw that the postman had arrived. He was standing at the foot of the steps, giving the housemaid the eye. Hello, beautiful, he said. I didn't like it. My heart sank. Now that I could see this postman steadily and see him whole, 
he stood out without disguise as a jaunty young postman, lissom of limb and a mass of sex appeal, the sort of postman who, when off duty, is a devil of a fellow at the local hops, and when engaged on his professional rounds, considers the day wasted that doesn't start with about ten minutes' intensive flirtation with the nearest domestic handy. I'd been hoping for something many years older and much less of the society playboy. With a fellow like this at the helm, the delivery of the first post was going to take time, and every moment that passed made more probable the arrival on the scene of Madeline Bassett and others. My fears were well-founded. The minutes went by, and still this gay young postman stood rooted to the spot, dishing out the brilliant bandage as if he were some carefree gentleman of leisure who was just passing by in the course of an early morning stroll. seemed to me monstrous that a public servant, whose salary I helped to pay, should be wasting the government's time in this frivolous manner, and wouldn't have taken much to make me write a strong letter to the Times about it. Eventually, awakening to a sense of his obligations, he handed over a wad of correspondence, and with a final sally went on his way, and the housemaid disappeared to manifest herself a few minutes later in the dining room, there having read a couple of postcards in rather a bored way, as if she found little in them to grip an interest. She did what she ought to have done at least a quarter of an hour earlier, viz. placed them and the letters beside the various plates. I perked up. Things I felt were moving along. What would happen now, I assumed, was that she would pop off and go about her domestic duties, leaving the terrain unencumbered. And it was with something of the emotions of the war horse that saith ha among the trumpets that I once more braced the muscles, ignoring the cat which was weaving in and out between my legs with a camaraderie in its manner that suggested it had now got me definitely tapped as God's gift to the animal kingdom of Wimbledon, I made ready to leap. Picture, then, my chagrin and agony of spirit when, instead of hoofing it out the door, this undisciplined housemaid came through the window and, having produced a gasper, stood leaning against the wall, puffing luxuriously and gazing dreamily at the sky, as if thinking of the postman. I don't know anything more sickening than being baffled by an unforeseen stymie at the eleventh hour and would not be overstating it to say that I writhed with impotent fury. As a rule, my relations with housemaids are cordial and sympathetic. If I meet a housemaid, I beam at her and say good morning, and she beams at me and says good morning, and all is joy and peace. But this one I would gladly have socked in the napper with a brick. I stood there cursing. She stood there smoking. How long I cursed and she smoked, I couldn't say but I was just wondering if this degrading exhibition was going on forever when she suddenly leaped, looked hastily over her shoulder, and, hurling the gasper from her, legged it round the other side of the house, the whole thing rather reminiscent of a nymph surprised while bathing. And it wasn't long before I was able to spot what had caused her concern. I had thought for a moment that the voice of conscience must have whispered in her ear, but this was not so. Somebody was coming out the front door, and my heart did a quick double somersault as I saw that it was Madeline Bassett. And I was just saying, this is the end, for it seemed inevitable that in another two ticks she would be inside the dining room absorbing the latest news from Deverell Hall, when my joie de vivre, which had hit a new low, was restored, by the sight of her turning to the left instead of the right. And I perceived what had failed to register in that first awful moment. 
she was carrying a basket and gardening scissors. One sprang to the conclusion that she was off for a bit of pre-breakfast nosegay gathering, and one was right. She disappeared, and I was alone once more with the cat. There is, as Jeeves rather neatly put it once, a tide in the affairs of men which, taken at flood, leads on to fortune, and I could clearly see enough that this was it. What is known as the crucial moment had unquestionably arrived, and any knowledgeable adviser, had such a one been present, would have urged me to make it snappy and get moving while the going was good. But recent events had left me weak. The spectacle of Madeline Bassett so close to me that I could have tossed a pebble into her mouth, not that I would have, of course, had had the effect of numbing the sinews. I was for the nonce a spent force, incapable even of kicking the cat, which possibly under the impression that this rigid Bertram was a tree had now started to sharpen its claws on my leg. And it was lucky I was a spent force, I mean not a tree, for at that very moment when, had I had the horsepower, I would have been sailing through the dining room window, a girl came out carrying a white woolly dog, and a nice ass I would have looked if I had taken at the flood the tide which leads on to fortune, because it wouldn't have led on to fortune or anything like it. It would have resulted in a nasty collision on the threshold. She was a solid hefty girl, of the type which plays five sets of tennis without turning a hair, and from the fact that her face was sombre and her movements on the listless side, I deduced that this must be Madeline Bassett's school friend, the one whose sex life had recently stubbed its toe. Too bad, of course, and one was sorry that she and the dream man hadn't been able to make a go of it, but at the moment I wasn't thinking very much about her troubles, my attention being riveted on the disturbing fact that I was dished. Thanks to the delay caused by the dilatory methods of that sprightly young postman, my plan of campaign was a total loss. I couldn't possibly start to function with solid girls cluttering up the fairway. There was but one hope. Her demeanour was that of a girl about to take the dog for a run, and it might be that she and friend would wander far enough afield to enable me to bring this thing off. I was just speculating on the odds for and against this when she put the dog on the ground, and with indescribable emotion I saw it was heading straight for my bush, and in another moment would be noting contents and barking its head off. For no dog, white or not white, woolly or not woolly, accepts with a mere raised eyebrow the presence of strangers in bushes. The thing I felt might quite possibly culminate not only in exposure, disgrace and shame, but in a quick nip on the ankle. It was the cat who eased a tense situation, possibly because it had not yet breakfasted and wished to do so, or it may be because the charm of Bertram Worcester's society had begun at last to pal, it selected this moment to leave me. It turned on its heel and emerged from the bush, with its tail in the air, and the white woolly dog, sighting it, broke into a canine version of Aunt Charlotte's A Hunting We Will Go song, and with a brief hello, 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 went a-hunting. The pursuit rolled away over break and over thorn, with Madeline Bassett's school friend bringing up the rear, Position at the turn. One, cat. Two, dog. Three, Madeline Bassett's school friend. The leaders were well up in a bunch. Several lengths separated two and three. I did not linger and dally. All a passerby, had there been a passerby, would have seen was a sort of blur. Ten seconds later, I was standing beside the breakfast table, panting slightly, 
with Gussie's letter in my hand. To trouser it was with me the work of an instant. To reach the window with a view to the quick getaway that of an instant more. And I was on the point of passing through in the same old bustling way when I suddenly perceived the solid girl returning with the white woolly dog in her arms. And I saw what must have happened. These white woolly dogs lack staying power. All right for the quick sprint, but hopeless across country. This one must have lost the hello-hello spirit in the first fifty yards or so, and pausing for breath, allowed itself to be gathered in. In moments of peril, the Worcesters act swiftly. One way out being barred from me, I decided in a flash to take the other. I nipped through the door, nipped across the hall, and still nipping, reached the temporary safety of the room on the other side of it. <laughs>